This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book One, Chapter Three, Part Ten. At the close of the reign of Charles the Second, the pride of the Londoners was smarting from a cruel mortification. The old charter had been taken away, and the magistracy had been remodelled. All the civic functionaries were Tories, and the Whigs, though in numbers and in wealth superior to their opponents, found themselves excluded from every local dignity. Nevertheless, the external splendour of the municipal government was not diminished, nay was rather increased by this change for under the administration of some Puritans, who had lately borne rule, the ancient fame of the city for good cheer had declined. But under the new magistrates, who belonged to a more festive party, and at whose boards guests of rank and fashion from beyond Temple Bar were often seen, Guildhall and the halls of the great companies were enlivened by many sumptuous banquets. During these repasts, Odes composed by the poet laureate of the corporation, in praise of the king, the duke, and the mayor, were sung to music. The drinking was deep and the shouting loud. An observant Tory, who had often shared in these revels, has remarked that the practice of huzzaing after drinking healths dates from this joyous period. The magnificence displayed by the first civic magistrate was almost regal. The gilded coach, indeed, which is now annually admired by the crowd, was not yet a part of his state. On great occasions he appeared on horseback, attended by a long cavalcade, inferior in magnificence only to that which, before a coronation, escorted the sovereign from the tower to Westminster. The Lord Mayor was never seen in public without his rich robe, his hood of black velvet, his gold chain, his jewel, and a great attendance of harbingers and guards. Nor did the world find anything ludicrous in the pomp which constantly surrounded him, for it was not more than became the place which, as wielding the strength and representing the dignity of the City of London, he was entitled to occupy in the state. That city being then not only without equal in the country, but without second, had during five and forty years exercised almost as great an influence on the politics of England as Paris has, in our own time, exercised on the politics of France. In intelligence, London was greatly in advance of every other part of the kingdom. A government supported and trusted by London could in a day obtain such pecuniary means as it would have taken months to collect from the rest of the island. Nor were the military resources of the capital to be despised. The power which the Lord Lieutenants exercised in other parts of the kingdom was in London entrusted to a commission of eminent citizens. Under the order of this commission were twelve regiments of foot and two regiments of horse, an army of drapers, apprentices, and journeymen tailors, 
with common councilmen for captains, and aldermen for colonels, might not, indeed, have been able to stand its ground against regular troops, but there were then very few regular troops in the kingdom. A town, therefore, which could send forth at an hour's notice thousands of men, abounding in natural courage, provided with tolerable weapons, and not altogether untinctured with martial discipline, could not but be a valuable ally and a formidable enemy. It was not forgotten that Hamden and Pym had been protected from lawless tyranny by the London trainbands, that in the great crisis of the Civil War the London trainbands had marched to raise the siege of Gloucester, or that in the movement against the military tyrants which followed the downwall of Richard Cromwell the London trainbands had borne a signal part. In truth, it is no exaggeration to say that but for the hostility of the city, Charles I would never have been vanquished, and that without the help of the city, Charles II could scarcely have been restored. These considerations may serve to explain why, in spite of that attraction which had, during a long course of years, gradually drawn the aristocracy westward, a few men of high rank had continued, till a very recent period, to dwell in the vicinity of the Exchange and of the Guild Hall. Shaftesbury and Buckingham, while engaged in bitter and unscrupulous opposition to the government, had thought that they could nowhere carry on their intrigues so conveniently or so securely as under the protection of the city magistrates and the city militia. Shaftesbury had therefore lived in Aldersgate Street, at a house which may still be easily known by pilasters and wreaths, the graceful work of Inigo. Buckingham had ordered his mansion near Charing Cross, once the abode of the Archbishops of York, to be pulled down, and while streets and alleys, which are still named after him, were rising on that site, chose to reside in Dowgate. These, however, were rare exceptions. Almost all the noble families of England had long migrated beyond the walls. The district where most of their town-houses stood lies between the city and the regions which are now considered as fashionable. A few great men still retained their hereditary hotels in the Strand, the stately dwellings on the south and west of Lincoln's Inn Fields, the Piazza of Covent Garden, Southampton Square, which is now called Bloomsbury Square, and King Square in Soho Fields, which is now called Soho Square, were among the favourite spots. Foreign princes were carried to see Bloomsbury Square, as one of the wonders of England. Soho Square, which had just been built, was to our ancestors a subject of pride, with which their posterity will hardly sympathise. Monmouth Square had been the name, while the fortunes of the Duke of Monmouth flourished, and on the southern side towered his mansion. The front, though ungraceful, was lofty and richly adorned. The walls of the principal apartments were finely sculptured with fruit, foliage, and armorial bearings, and were hung with embroidered satin. Every trace of this magnificence has long since disappeared, and no aristocratical mansion is to be found in that once aristocratical quarter. Little way north from Holborn, and on the verge of pastures and cornfields, rose two celebrated palaces, each with an ample garden. One of them, then called Southampton House, and subsequently Bedford House, 
was removed about fifty years ago to make room for a new city, which now covers with its squares, streets, and churches, a vast area renowned in the seventeenth century for peaches and snipes. The other Montague house, celebrated for its frescoes and furniture, was, for a few months after the death of Charles the Second, burned to the ground, and was speedily succeeded by a more magnificent Montague house, which, having been long the repository of such various and precious treasures of art, science, and learning, as were scarcely ever before assembled under a single roof, has now given place to an edifice more magnificent still. Nearer to the court, on a space called St. James's Fields, had just been built St. James's Square and German Street. St. James's Church had recently been opened for the accommodation of the inhabitants of this new quarter. Golden Square, which was in the next generation inhabited by lords and ministers of state, had not yet been begun. Indeed, the only dwellings to be seen on the north of Piccadilly were three or four isolated and almost rural mansions, of which the most celebrated was the costly pile erected by Clarendon, and nicknamed Dunkirk House. It had been purchased, after its founder's downfall, by the Duke of Albemarle. Clarendon Hotel and Albemarle Street still preserve the memory of the site. He who then rambled to what is now the gayest and most crowded part of Regent Street found himself in a solitude, and was sometimes so fortunate as to have a shot at a woodcock. On the north the Oxford Road ran between hedges, three or four hundred yards to the south were the garden walls of a few great houses, which were considered as quite out of town. On the west was a meadow renowned for a spring, from which long afterwards Conduit Street was named. On the east was a field, not to be passed without a shudder by any Londoner of that age. There, as in a place far from the haunts of men, had been dug twenty years before, when the great plague was raging, a pit into which the dead carts had nightly shot corpses by scores. It was popularly believed that the earth was deeply tainted with infection, and could not be disturbed without imminent risk to human life. No foundations were laid there till two generations had passed, without any return of the pestilence, until the ghastly spot had long been surrounded by buildings. We should greatly err if we were to suppose that any of the streets and squares then bore the same aspect as at present. The great majority of the houses, indeed, have, since that time, been wholly or in great part rebuilt. The most fashionable parts of the capital could be placed before us, such as they then were, we should be disgusted by their squalid appearance, and poisoned by their noisome atmosphere. In Covent Garden, filthy and noisy market was held close to the dwellings of the great. Fruit women screamed, carters fought. Cabbage stalks and rotten apples accumulated in heaps at the thresholds of the Countess of Berkshire, and of the Bishop of Durham. The centre of Lincoln's Inn Fields was an open space, where the rabble congregated every evening, within a few yards of Cardigan House and Winchester House, to hear mountebanks harangue, to see bears dance, to see dogs at oxen. Rubbish was shot in every part of the area. Horses were exercised there. The beggars were as noisy and importunate as in the worst governed cities of the continent. 
A Lincoln's Inn Mumper was a proverb. The whole fraternity knew the arms and liveries of every charitably disposed grandee in the neighbourhood, and as soon as his lordship's coach and six appeared, came hopping and crawling in crowds to persecute him. These disorders lasted in spite of many accidents, and of some legal proceedings, till in the reign of George the Second, Sir Joseph Jekyll, master of the rolls, was knocked down and nearly killed in the middle of the square. Then at length palisades were set up, and a pleasant garden laid out. St. James's Square was a receptacle for all the offal and cinders, for all the dead cats and dead dogs of Westminster. At one time a cudgel player kept the ring there, at another time an impudent squatter settled himself there, and built a shed for rubbish under the windows of the gilded saloons, in which the first magnates of the realm, Norfolk, Ormond, Kent, and Pembroke, gave banquets and balls. It was not till these nuisances had lasted through a whole generation, and till much had been written about them, that the inhabitants applied to Parliament for permission to put up rails and to plant trees. When such was the state of the region inhabited by the most luxurious portion of society, we may easily believe that the great body of the population suffered what would now be considered as insupportable grievances. The pavement was detestable. All foreigners cried shame upon it. The drainage was so bad that in rainy weather the gutters soon became torrents. Several facetious poets have commemorated the fury with which these black rivulets soared down Snow Hill and Ludgate Hill, bearing to Fleet Ditch a vast tribute of animal and vegetable filth from the stalls of butchers and greengrocers. This flood was profusely thrown to right and left by coaches and carts. To keep as far from the carriage road as possible was therefore the wish of every pedestrian. The mild and timid gave the wall, the bold and athletic took it. If two roisterers met, they cocked their hats in each other's faces, and pushed each other about, until the weaker was shoved toward the kennel. If he was a mere bully, he sneaked off, muttering that he should find a time. If he was pugnacious, the encounter probably ended in a duel behind Montague House. The houses were not numbered. There would indeed have been little advantage in numbering them, for of the coachmen, chairmen, porters, and errand-boys of London, a very small proportion could read. It was necessary to use marks which the most ignorant could understand. The shops were therefore distinguished by painted or sculptured signs, which gave a gay and grotesque aspect to the streets. The walk from Charing Cross to Whitechapel lay through an endless succession of Saracen's heads, royal oaks, blue bears, and golden lambs, which disappeared when they were no longer required for the direction of the common people. When the evening closed in, the difficulty and danger of walking about London became very serious indeed. The garret windows were opened and pails were emptied, with little regard to those who were passing below. Falls, bruises, and broken bones were of constant occurrence. For till the last year of the reign of Charles the Second, most of the streets were left in profound darkness. Thieves and robbers plied their trade with impunity, yet they were hardly so terrible to peaceful citizens as another class of ruffians. It was a favourite amusement of dissolute young gentlemen 
to swagger by night about the town, breaking windows, upsetting sedans, beating quiet men, and offering rude caresses to pretty women. Several dynasties of these tyrants had, since the Restoration, domineered over the streets. The Muns and Titotus had given place to the Hectors, and the Hectors had been recently succeeded by the Scourers. At a later period arose the Nicker, the Hockebite, and the yet more dreaded name of Mohawk. The machinery for keeping the peace was utterly contemptible. There was an act of common council which provided that more than a thousand watchmen should be constantly on the alert in the city, from sunset to sunrise, and that every inhabitant should take his turn of duty. But this act was negligently executed. Few of those who were summoned left their homes, and those few generally found it more agreeable to tipple in alehouses than to pace the streets. It ought to be noticed that in the last year of the reign of Charles the Second began a great change in the police of London, a change which has perhaps added as much to the happiness of the body of the people as revolutions of much greater fame. An ingenious projector named Edward Hemming obtained letters patent conveying to him, for a term of years, the exclusive right of lighting up London. He undertook, for a moderate consideration, to place a light before every tenth door, on moonless nights, from Michaelmas to Lady Day, and from six to twelve of the clock. Those who now see the capital all the year round, from dusk to dawn, blazing with a splendour besides which the illuminations for La Hogue and Blenheim would have looked pale, may perhaps smile to think of Hemming's lanterns, which glimmered feebly before one house in ten, during a small part of one night in three. But such was not the feeling of its contemporaries. His scheme was enthusiastically applauded, and furiously attacked. The friends of improvement extolled him as the greatest of all the benefactors of his city. What, they asked, were the boasted inventions of Archimedes, when compared with the achievement of the man who had turned the nocturnal shades into noonday? In spite of these eloquent eulogies, the cause of darkness was not left undefended. There were fools in that age who opposed the introduction of what was called the new light, as strenuously as fools in our age have opposed the introduction of vaccination and railroads, as strenuously as the fools of an age anterior to the dawn of history doubtless opposed the introduction of the plough and of alphabetical writing. Many years after the date of Hemming's patent, there were extensive districts in which no lamp was seen. We may easily imagine what in such times must have been the state of the quarters of London, which were peopled by the outcasts of society. Among those quarters one had attained a scandalous pre-eminence. On the confines of the city and the temple had been founded, in the thirteenth century, a house of Carmelite friars, distinguished by their white hoods. The precinct of this house had, before the Reformation, been a sanctuary for criminals, and still retained the privilege of protecting debtors from arrest. Insolvents, consequently, were to be found in every dwelling, from cellar to garret. Of these a large proportion were knaves and libertines, and were followed to their asylum by women more abandoned than themselves. The civil power was unable to keep order in a district swarming with such inhabitants, and thus Whitefriars became the favourite resort 
of all who wish to be emancipated from the restraints of the law. Though the immunities legally belonging to the place extended only to cases of debts, cheats, false witnesses, forgers, and highwaymen found refuge there. For amidst the rabble so desperate, no peace officer's life was in safety. At the cry of rescue, bullies with swords and cudgels, and termagant hags with spits and broomsticks, poured forth by hundreds, and the intruder was fortunate if he escaped back into Fleet Street, hustled, stripped, and pumped upon. Even the warrant of the Chief Justice of England could not be executed without the help of a company of musketeers. Such relics of the barbarism of the darkest ages were to be found within a short walk of the chambers where Somers was studying history and law, of the chapel where Tillotson was preaching, of the coffee-house where Dryden was passing judgment on poems and plays, and of the hall where the Royal Society was examining the astronomical system of Isaac Newton. Each of the two cities, which made up the capital of England, had its own centre of attraction. In the metropolis of commerce, the point of convergence was the exchange. In the metropolis of fashion, the palace. But the palace did not retain influence so long as the exchange. The revolution completely altered the relations between the court and the higher classes of society. It was by degrees discovered that the king, in his individual capacity, had very little to give, that coronets and garters, bishoprics and embassies, lordships of the treasury and tellerships of the exchequer, nay even charges in the royal stud and bedchamber, were really bestowed, not by him, but by his advisers. Every ambitious and covetous man perceived that he would consult his own interests far better by acquiring the dominion of a Cornish borough, and by rendering good service to the ministry during a critical session, than by becoming the companion, or even the minion, of his prince. It was therefore in the antechambers, not of George I and of George II, but of Walpole and of Pelham, that the daily crowd of courtiers were to be found. It is also to be remarked that the same revolution, which made it impossible that our kings should use the patronage of the state, merely for the purpose of gratifying their personal predilection, gave us several kings, unfitted by their education and habits, to be gracious and affable hosts. They had been born and bred on the continent. They never felt themselves at home in our island. If they spoke our language, they spoke it inelegantly and with effort. Our national character they never fully understood, our national manners they hardly attempted to acquire. The most important part of their duty they performed better than any ruler who preceded them, for they governed strictly according to law, but they could not be the first gentlemen of the realm. The heads of polite society, if ever they unbent, it was in a very small circle, where hardly an English face was to be seen, and they were never so happy as when they could escape for a summer to their native land. They had indeed their days of reception for our nobility and gentry, but the reception was a mere matter of form, and became at last as solemn a ceremony as a funeral. Not such was the court of Charles the Second. Whitehall, when he dwelt there, was the focus of political intrigue and of fashionable gaiety. Half the jobbing and half the flirting of the metropolis went on under his roof, 
whoever could make himself agreeable to the prince, or could secure the good offices of the mistress, might hope to rise in the world, without rendering any service to the government, without being even known by sight to any minister of state. This courtier got a frigate, and that a company, a third the pardon of a rich offender, a fourth the lease of crown land on easy terms. If the king notified his pleasure that a briefless lawyer should be made a judge, or that a libertine baronet should be made a peer, the gravest counsellors, after a little murmuring, submitted. Interest, therefore, drew a constant press of suitors to the gates of the palace, and those gates always stood wide. The king kept open house every day and all day long, for the good society of London, the extreme Whigs only excepted. Hardly any gentleman had any difficulty in making his way to the royal presence. The levy was exactly what the word imports. Some men of quality came every morning to stand round their master, to chat with him while his wig was combed and his cravat tied, and to accompany him in his early walk through the park. All persons who had been properly introduced might, without any special invitation, go to see him dine, sup, dance, and play at hazard, and might have the pleasure of hearing him tell stories, which indeed he told remarkably well, about his flight from Worcester, and about the misery which he had endured when he was a state prisoner, in the hands of the canting, meddling preachers of Scotland. Bystanders, whom his majesty recognised, often came in for a courteous word. This proved a far more successful kingcraft than any that his father or grandfather had practised. It was not easy for the most austere republican of the school of Marvel to resist the fascination of so much good humour and affability, and many a veteran cavalier, in whose heart the remembrance of unrequited sacrifices and services had been festering during twenty years, was compensated in one moment for wounds and sequestrations by his sovereign's kind nod and God bless you, my old friend. Whitehall naturally became the chief staple of news. Whenever there was a rumour that anything important had happened, or was about to happen, people hastened thither to obtain intelligence from the fountain head. The galleries presented the appearance of a modern club room at an anxious time. They were full of people inquiring whether the Dutch mail was in, what tidings the express from France had brought, whether John Sobieski had beaten the Turks, whether the Doge of Genoa was really at Paris. These were matters about which it was safe to talk aloud, but there were subjects concerning which information was asked, and given in whispers. Had Halifax got the better of Rochester? Was there to be a Parliament? Was the Duke of York really going to Scotland? Had Monmouth really been summoned from the Hague? Men tried to read the countenance of every minister, as he went through the throng, to and from the royal closet. All sorts of auguries were drawn in from the tone in which His Majesty spoke to the Lord President, or from the laugh with which His Majesty honoured the jests of the Lord Privy Seal and in a few hours the hopes and fears inspired by such slight indication had spread to all the coffee-houses from st james's to the tower the coffee-house must not be dismissed with a cursory mention 
It might indeed at that time have been not improperly called a most important political institution. No parliament had sat for years. The municipal council of the city had ceased to speak the sense of the citizens. Public meetings, harangues, resolutions, and the rest of the modern machinery of agitation had not yet come into fashion. Nothing resembling the modern newspaper existed. In such circumstances, the coffee-houses were the chief organs through which the public opinion of the metropolis vented itself. The first of these establishments had been set up by a turkey merchant who had acquired among the Mahometans a taste for their favourite beverage. The convenience of being able to make appointments in any part of the town, and of being able to pass evening socially at a very small charge, was so great that the fashion spread fast. Every man of the upper or middle class went daily to his coffee-house to learn the news and to discuss it. Every coffee-house had one or more orators to whose eloquence the crowd listened with admiration, and who soon became, what the journalists of our time have been called, a fourth estate of the realm. The courts had long seen, with uneasiness, the growth of this new power in the state. An attempt had been made, during Danby's administration, to close the coffee-houses, but men of all parties missed their usual places of resort so much that there was a universal outcry. The government did not venture, in opposition to a feeling so strong and general, to enforce a regulation, of which the legality might well be questioned. Since that time ten years had elapsed, and during those years the number and influence of the coffee-houses had been constantly increasing. Foreigners remarked that the coffee-house was that which especially distinguished London from all other cities, that the coffee-house was the Londoner's home, and that those who wished to find a gentleman commonly asked not whether he lived in Fleet Street or Chancery Lane, but whether he frequented the Grecian or the Rainbow. Nobody was excluded from these places, who laid down his penny at the bar, yet every rank and profession and every shade of religious and political opinion had its own headquarters. There were houses near St. James's Park, where fops congregated, their heads and shoulders covered with black or flaxen wigs, not less ample than those which are now worn by the Chancellor and by the Speaker of the House of Commons. The wig came from Paris, so did the rest of the fine gentleman's ornaments, his embroidered coat, his fringed gloves, and the tassel which upheld his pantaloons. The conversation was in that dialect, which long after it had ceased to be spoken in fashionable circles, continued in the mouth of Lord Foppington, to excite the mirth of theatres. The atmosphere was like that of a perfumer's shop. Tobacco, in any other form than that of richly scented snuff, was held in abomination. If any clown, ignorant of the uses of the house, called for a pipe, the sneers of the whole assembly, and the short answers of the waiters, soon convinced him that he had better go somewhere else. Nor, indeed, would he have far to go. For, in general, the coffee-rooms reeked with tobacco, like a guard-room, and strangers sometimes expressed their surprise that so many people should leave their own firesides to sit in the midst of eternal fog and stench. Nowhere was the smoking more constant than at Will's, that celebrated house situated between Covent Garden and Rose Street, 
was sacred to political letters. There the talk was about poetical justice and the unities of place and time. There was a fashion for Perrault and the moderns, a faction for Boileau and the ancients. One group debated whether Paradise Lost ought not to have been in rhyme. To another, in envious potaster, demonstrated that Venice Preserved ought to have been hooted from the stage. Under no roof was a greater variety of figures to be seen. There were earls in stars and garters, clergymen in cassocks and bands, pert templars, sheepish lads from the universities, translators and index-makers in ragged coats of frieze. The great press was to get near the chair, where John Dryden sate. In winter that chair was always in the warmest nook by the fire. In summer it stood in the balcony. To bow to the laureate, and to hear his opinion of Racine's last tragedy, or of Bossu's treatise on epic poetry, was thought a privilege. Pinched from his snuff-box was an honour sufficient to turn the head of a young enthusiast. There were coffee-houses where the first medical men might be consulted. Dr. John Radcliffe, who in the year 1685 rose to the largest practice in London, came daily at the hour when the exchange was full, from his house in Bow Street, then a fashionable part of the capital, to Garraway's, and was to be found surrounded by surgeons and apothecaries at a particular table. There were Puritan coffee-houses where no oath was heard, and where lank-haired men discussed election and reprobation through their noses. Jew coffee-houses, where dark-eyed money-changers from Venice and Amsterdam greeted each other, and popish coffee-houses, where, as good Protestants believed, Jesuits planned over their cups another great fire, and cast silver bullets to shoot the king. These gregarious habits had no small share in forming the character of the Londoner of that age. He was indeed a different being from the rustic Englishman. There was not then the intercourse which now exists between the two classes. Only very great men were in the habit of dividing the year between town and country. Fewer squires came to the capital thrice in their lives. Nor was it yet the practice of all citizens in easy circumstances to breathe the fresh air of the fields and woods during some weeks of every summer. A cockney in a rural village was stared at as much as if he had intruded into a kraal of Hottentots. On the other hand, when the lord of a Lincolnshire or Shropshire manor appeared in Fleet Street, he was as easily distinguished from the resident population as a Turk or a Lascar. His dress, his gait, his accent, the manner in which he gazed at the shops, stumbled into the gutters, ran against the porters, and stood under the water-spouts, marked him out as an excellent subject for the operations of swindlers and barterers. Bullies jostled him into the kennel. Hackney-coachmen splashed him from head to foot. Thieves explored with perfect security the huge pockets of his horseman's coat, while he stood entranced by the splendour of the Lord Mayor's show. Money-droppers saw from the cart's tail, introduced themselves to him, and appeared to him the most honest, friendly gentleman that he had ever seen. Painted women, the refuse of Lucna Lane and Weston Park, passed themselves on him for countesses and maids of honour. If he asked his way to St. James's, his informants sent him to Mile End. If he went to a shop, 
he was instantly discerned to be a fit purchaser of everything that nobody else would buy, of second-hand embroidery, copper rings, and watches that would not go. If he rambled into any fashionable coffee-house, he became a mark for the insolent derision of fops and the grave waggery of Templars. Enraged and mortified, he soon returned to his mansion, and there, in the homage of his tenants and the conversation of his boon companions, found consolation for the vexatious and humiliations which he had undergone. There he was once more a great man, and saw nothing above himself, except when at assizes he took his seat on the bench near the judge, or when at the muster of the militia he saluted the Lord Lieutenant. End of Part 10